BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Samantha Boardman. She's a New York-based positive psychiatrist. She's committed to fixing what's wrong and building what's strong. And even though historically psychiatry is focused on diagnosis of disease and treatment of individuals with mental illness, positive psychiatry takes a more expansive approach focusing on the promotion of well being and the creation of health. Dr. Boardman is also Harvard educated, Cornell trained, and the author of Everyday Vitality, where she combines the science with the practical applications so that if you are feeling depressed, anxious, burned out, or just wanting so much to better connect with your kids, she is giving really practical tools based on the science to flourish. And it's just was such a fun conversation. I could not get enough and I hope you enjoy it. And of course, if you did, please don't forget to give a five-star rating and maybe write a little review of your favorite part or your favorite episode. And if you're enjoying Raising Good Humans podcast, if you're sending DMs to my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast, and you want more of the content, please sign up for my bulletin, dreliza.bulletin.com, where I am going to be giving summaries and practical tools and applications for each episode. If you didn't have time to listen, or if you did, but you just are thinking, okay, what are the ways for me to quickly remember how to put this into practice? And also more interactive listener Q&As and conversations, articles, and more. Right now, there is such a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the wellness culture. Yes. And you're talking about hard science and how to incorporate that into your everyday experiences so that you can thrive, which sometimes people think, well, I don't have time for that. And parents especially, except that we know that for kids to thrive, your primary caregiver needs to be okay. So I love your framework as a psychiatrist, figuring this out in manageable and actionable ways so that you can experience this everyday vitality. But how are you defining vitality? And we'll start from there. Okay. Well, the way I think vitality was not a word that I heard in medical school. It was not a word I heard in training to become a psychiatrist. And it really wasn't a word I heard other than in the context of like Richard Simmons and dancing to the oldies or something. So it wasn't something that was out there. And, you know, I started to to look at it because I was seeing so many patients come in just kind of feeling, you know, exhausted, dead inside, drowning, you know, the opposite of feeling. I think the words that most people use are 
you know, tired, bored, stressed. You know, it's the way people are feeling, really like the opposite of feeling alive. And vitality was really a word that captured this psychological and physical feeling of feeling ready for anything, that you had energy, that you had spirit. And the psychologist Andrew Solomon had said that the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. Mm. And I think it's this incredible, like important marker for everyday well-being. Do you feel, you know, do you say yes to like, I have lots of energy. I feel ready to face the day. I'm ready to take on a challenge. Can you say yes to those items? And so in, then looking at what gives people vitality, like where does it come from? Is this something that just is, I feel, or I don't feel, or I'm born with, or I'm not, and sort of in an everyday way. And you know, the research shows, and it kind of is, you can superimpose it onto self-determination theory from Ed DC and Richard Ryan, mm-hmm. that it's, you know, where you have opportunities for autonomy, that you have opportunities for relatedness, and that you have opportunities for competence. And autonomy, like, you know, where you have a sense of agency, you have a say in what's going on in your life, competence being like you have some sense of mastery and relatedness, that you are feeling a sense of love and that you are loved. And so kind of boiling that down, what does that mean in your everyday life? And really what I call like the three C's, that's where it emerged. What are the everyday ways that people experience vitality? And what was vitality enhancing and what was devitalizing and like vitality diminishing? And it was the three three C's really is number one, where you're feeling like you're connected to others. You know, you feel like you're having a meaningful conversation. You're feeling that you are this sort of shared synchronous moments that you are together. Second one is where you're feeling challenged in a positive way, that experience of like desirable difficulty where you are boosting your competence in some way where you're learning something. And then the third way was where you feel like you're contributing to something beyond yourself, that you're adding value in some way. Because you know, at the end of the day, we know how important it is. We know how important it is for children to feel like they are valued, that they're cared about but it's just as important to feel like they're adding value in some way. And I think really that's the essence of meaning when you're feeling that you're valued and that you're also adding value. Let's start with the first one, meaningful connections. What are some ways to identify meaningful connections in your everyday experience? And like, what are those meaningful connections? And I don't mean to to get into this in this way where I don't believe that people kind of have that sense of what a meaningful connection is, but sometimes you feel like you understand it. But then when you really look at your everyday, you wonder, am I having meaningful connections? And is there something I can be doing to bolster those connections? Sure. I mean, because that was something that came up a lot with patients that I had was that they felt like they were really going through the motions a lot. As this one um, woman said to me, you know, I realized I'd asked my kid, how your day was, like, you know, how their kid's day was and that she hadn't even listened, you know, to the response because she asked the kid again, like five minutes later. And that kind of absent presence that was really bothering her. And she felt quite disconnected from, you know, just not listening and not being present and having that sense of, wait a minute, like I'm pretending to be curious. I'm going through the motions of asking you about your day and what you're going on, but it's, I'm not even... I'm not even sort of digesting it. And, you know, there's a lot of research out there that shows that young kids, I mean, really like kids as young as three, they they know when you're not there. They know where you're half there. They know when you're looking at your phone, if you're there picking them up from school and, you know, you're looking down, not at the door, you know, because you're on the phone, that that sense of, 
absent presence is there. And we know that having frequent positive interactions with people who care about you is so important. And that sense of almost what we call invisible support that, you know, that they're cared about, that there's, it's not always saying like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? You know, that type of inquiry, but actually like that, that the, the genuine, like, I care about what you're going to say to me. You're telling me about your day. Tell me more. You know, like those three words are always so important. Um, you know, there's Tell research around, it's called active constructive responding. If somebody comes home with some news, if your child, your partner, you know, a friend, Hey, you could say, they, they, they tell you something that happened and you could hijack the conversation, say, ha, ah, guess what happened to me? Or you could say, oh, great, what are we having for dinner? You know, you could sort of blow it off. But what's called like active constructive responding, ACR, is really showing genuine curiosity and tell me more. Uh, just saying that to your kid, but actually being present is such a way to kind of open them up. Also, I think we all know that, you know, when you wear having some synchronized movement when we're not like sitting across from them, but we're, you know, side by side, even like driving in a car where we're not having that eye contact, they're much more likely to open up. I think all parents have had this experience, like your kids open up in these weird moments, you know, and like wherever that might be for sometimes it was with my son when he was walking the dog. And if I went out with him too, like it would just be in these funny little flashes of like, ah, that's that little window of you just kind of peeling back the curtain just a little bit or opening the door just a little bit. But what we know though also is certainly having, you know, a phone with you. We can, you know, complain about our kids' screen time, but when they're watching us, when we're modeling that, I mean, every time we're looking at our phone and it's even next to us, we know we're essentially unsharing an experience with them. And you know, studies show that food tastes better, you know, when you're fully present with the other person. And if you have a phone on the table, you know that you're going to have a more meaningful conversation. You know, I think we often try to keep it light with kids too. And like, oh, just kind of shoot the breeze in a way. And that even just having those kind of deeper conversations of tell me more without falling into, and there's a lot of research out there too, about how parents can tend to co-ruminate with their children that, you know, is something, you know, that I think we want to stay away from. It's sort of like, what's wrong? You know, was that kid mean to you today again at school? You know, and asking them to then rehash it, like tell your sister how mean that person was again with you. Tell that other person how, you know, terrible that person was or how mean your teacher is to you. And, you know, some some of us ruminate anyway. And that, uh, you know, it's when we're, we have that sort of ticker tape going on in our mind, like, why did I say that? Or, you know, why did that thing keep happening to me or what's going on? And rumination can be an on-ramp to depression because we're just kind of going over and over something in our heads and we're not really kind of moving past it. It's when we sort of cling onto something and we, you know, you're co-ruminating like with a friend or even with a, with a child or, or a partner is if you're like, have we had this conversation before? If it feels like Groundhog Day a little bit. And one way to interrupt rumination is to ask, you know, or suggest that the other person self-distance. And that's kind of putting some distance between you and the emotions. So instead of saying, tell me again, exactly what happened, like verbatim, step by step, like as though you're, you know, you're reliving it. You could say instead, you know, or like somebody was in that room, there was a fly on the wall. How would they describe that yes. what happened today? You know, or another way to self-distance might be to say like, what would you tell a friend who, you know, like how would, how would they describe it if your friend were describing it to you? Or how would your future self describe this? You know, 
And because it does create this distance. So rather than being sort of in the swamp of your emotions, it gives you this perspective and helps you lift yourself out of it. And, you know, we know that it can be a very helpful trick to manage anxiety, to interrupt rumination, um, and to just keep things and to put them in perspective. Another way, you know, we always are telling people to, you know, be yourself. And I, I you know, I, there are a bunch of myths I debunk in my book. And sometimes being yourself isn't the best idea at all, because uh, it depends on sort of what your headspace is. And sometimes it is thinking about a character you admire. I mean, looking at some of those studies where these kids were given like a really, like an iPad with a really fun game to play on it, but they were also supposed to be solving some kind of tricky, boring math problems. And some kids were told like, well, you know, who's a character you like? And it could be Bob the Builder or Dora the Explorer or Batman. And those were told, okay, pretend that you're Batman. What would Batman do in this moment? And those who were kind of, you know, channeling uh, their superhero or somebody they admire were much more likely to persist and complete the kind of, you know, not exciting math problems and not spend as much time on that super tempting, fun iPad game. So I think we can often tap into like sort of resources that are available to us that are outside of us, you know, and like, who, who are your exemplars? Like who's somebody you admire right now? What might they do right now? And I think those kinds of conversations even we can have with our kids, because going back to that original, the connect part of the three C's is having meaningful conversations is so, so valuable and not just kind of putting out fires or dealing with schedules, but trying to kind of keep things open and having a phone not in, in the in the room and connecting about something, even, you know, learning about something even uh, in your family's history. We know that kids who know about their family history are more resilient when they've heard about like the ups and downs, like who know where their parents met, where their grandparents grew up and can see like that they are, you know, part of this longer history, this arc of a family history where there are ups and there have been downs and that there have been difficult times and challenges and that there have been successes and there have been failures. So they're not seeing themselves exclusively as the center or the main subject of a book. Like they're seeing themselves as a chapter in that. And I think that also is a wonderful way to connect with kids, to give them context, to be kind of talking even like around the dinner table about the past, the family and who they are and how they've, you know, how they've come to be. And for many of us, I mean, I'm always learning about my parents too. I'm like, you did what? You know, <laughs> but it can be, I think, a wonderful way to keep things, you know, in perspective. And now we're going to take a little break so that I can bring you a word from my sponsors. And then we're going to come back with more from Dr. Samantha Boardman. Did you know that an estimated 5 billion hand soaps and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. And each bottle can be made of more than 90% water. So let's just stop wasting water and throwing out more plastic. Get Blueland's revolutionary refill cleaning system instead. And a lot of people think eco-friendly products are more expensive and less effective, especially when it comes to cleaning. It might even say all natural, but you're not really sure if it gets the job done. I tell you, Blue Land has fixed that with its revolutionary refill tablets. Blue Land was founded on the belief that a cleaner planet starts at home. It's simple. You buy a bottle once, you refill it forever. No more plastic waste. And it just is like one thing you can do to feel just a little bit more in control 
of a much bigger problem. From their best-selling clean essentials kit to their hand soap duo, Blueland offers safe, smart options for every inch of your home. If you don't want their chic, very clean packaging, they also have teamed up with Disney to create a magical collection of hand soap forever bottles designed with Mickey and friends and their whimsical personalities in mind. So everybody's happy. The people like me who don't want to see anything but a clean (laughs) soap and a clean bottle and the tots that might want something a little bit more fun. Right now, you can get 20% off your order when you go to blueland.com slash humans. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products. Blueland.com slash humans. Blueland.com slash humans humans. Speaking of chilling out and well-being, the CBD market has become extremely saturated over the last few years. It seems like now you can buy CBD in pretty much any coffee shop or grocery store. The thing is that many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. So please be careful where you buy your CBD because just like Low-quality alcohol, low-quality tea, low-quality CBD can have undesired effects. These are plant-based products and they need to be certified organic because if they're not, there is a lot of garbage that goes in there. And then it really defeats the purpose of putting it into your body. NED is USDA certified organic. Again, I cannot stress enough. If you're going to put a plant in your body, make sure that it is USDA certified organic. And all of Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer in Colorado. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs. Ned's full spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. I want to tell you a little bit about their brand new product, which has been in development for over a year, the De-Stress Blend. It's a one-on-one formula of CBD and CBG made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. And did I mention it's USDA certified organic? Ned shares third-party lab reports who farm their products and their extraction process all right there on their site for full transparency. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Raising Good Humans listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code HUMANS. Visit helloned.com slash humans to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash humans to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common issues. Hey, I'm Allie Colbert. I'm a stand-up comedian, actress, and writer from New York City. And I'm Jackie Colbert. I have made my career as a comedian by using my insights and wit to make points. Funny points, but points. Look, I have good taste and too much common sense for just myself, so I'm going to share it with you guys. Okay, Allie, get over yourself. (laughs) And my younger sister and best friend Jackie is here to bring me back down to earth. Every Tuesday, Jackie and I are going to hang out with each other and some of our favorite people. And of course, respond to your questions and confessions. So send in your secrets. It's like church, but I'm Jewish and bisexual. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Sometimes we want to be supportive 
and we co-ruminate, as you said, and we don't know what that point is of how much time can we spend on this and how can we move on from that so that it isn't co-rumination, come back to it and yet not get into that cycle. So one of the things that you talked about, about sort of pulling back is self-distancing, but what's a way, and those are beautiful examples. And we just talked about last week, talking when you're problem solving, helping kids understand like, what would my wise friends say? What would my kind of, you know, trickier friends say? And so that you can find those voices in your own head and learn how to grab hold of them when you are problem solving. And self-distancing is such a beautiful tool. And I'm also wondering, what is some language that you can use to help your kids understand that you are there, that you want to hear the tell me, you want the tell me more. And also Mm -hmm. that there are moments that you're going to say, we're going to put this aside for now, not because I'm not interested and curious, but because it's time for us to put this aside and get back to it. It's not, it's not like it's disappearing. We just need some space. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it is a fine line. And I think there's that tell me more with good news. You can say, tell me more with things that are like a little bit hard or challenging. But when you feel like when your radar goes up and you're thinking, wait, we're just spinning our wheels right here. We've had Uh this conversation before. I don't think we're moving on here because what's the key here is that when you're ruminating, you're not coming to any, um, sort of resolution and you're Uh not, you're, you're, you're just swimming in the swamp still, and you're not sort of able to get out. And when you're ruminating, you're not able to take any actions. You're not able to kind of see, well, next time, what am I going to do differently? You're just sort of in it. And so what's so important about that self-distancing piece is with that level of perspective, it actually gives you some actions you can take. And I think as psychiatrists, you, you know, in psychology that we, you know, we sometimes think that like happiness is all in your head, right? And that like, oh, it's all how you're thinking and that's what matters the most. But actually, I mean, it's really important, especially I think around young people to keep in mind that it's actually in like the actions you take, right? And how what you do can so affect how you feel. And when you're ruminating, you get kind of stuck, you're paralyzed, you're, you're just spinning your wheels and I'm incapable. And it's just that incredibly anxiety provoking place. And I think when we're kind of joining our kids in there, it can feel like this kind of moment of connection, almost like, oh, you know, I'm hearing you and it's to go through it once or even twice. But when it's sort of like, let's do it again, let's do it with your siblings, let's do it with, you know, your parents, with your uncle, you know, whatever that is, that when you feel like it's just you're retelling something, and we've all been around like those uncles who just rehash the story, but we're not like kind of coming to any like resolution. Like, hey, what am I going to do about this next time? What am I going to do when I see that kid tomorrow? Like, how am I going to handle that when I see that teacher tomorrow that I think hates me for whatever reason? Or how am I going to handle this challenge? And I do, you know, I think this is true for adults as, as much as it is for kids. I mean, we're all capable of seeing what advice we would give to a friend who is in exactly the same situation. But when it comes to ourselves, we're like, ah, I'm, you know, I'm so stuck. And it's so hard yeah. to kind of stick our heads above the water and think like, ah, oh, maybe this is the way it is. And it, it's known as Solomon's paradox. Apparently King Solomon was wonderful and wise and would give everybody in his kingdom excellent advice, but his own personal life, like it was a train wreck. And 
So I think when we kind of tap into those ways out, because you're not saying, hey, I don't care about you when you're kind of just asking for these different perspectives, and because it can be part of the conversation, like, you know, how would a fly on the wall explain this? How would you, you know, what would you tell a friend who is telling you this? Because it's helping them think it through and then ultimately like be able to feel like they feel that they have the coping skills and the competencies to kind of handle it or whatever comes their way next time. And keeping that in mind, it's also a place to be thinking about like, what do you value most? Like, what are your top three values? And are you embodying whatever those are? I always ask patients when I meet them for the first time, like, okay, what do you, what are the three things that you care about most? And then like, how did you spend Saturday? You know, whatever. And there's often this like, wait a minute, there's this gap between what I say I care about and then like actually what I'm doing with my time. And we really like engage in kind of trying to figure out ways to, spend their time in ways that embody what they care about and where they can walk their walk. Robert Brooks, the psychologist, he sort of uses a different like sort of strategy to get to the bottom of this. And he says, what are like, if there are like three words that your child or your partner or your best friend, you know, what words would they be that, that you would hope that they would describe you with? Like what adjectives would those be? And then his next question is, so what do you do every single day that would elicit that description or those adjectives from, you know, whoever that audience is? And then the next question is, so what, you know, three words do you actually think they would use to describe you? And then the last part of that is, okay, how are you going to try to like close that gap? Between the actual and the hope. Yes. And so like, what's that intention versus the action? How do you close that intention action mm-hmm. gap and, um, and be a little bit more deliberate about what you care about? Because we know though people who are feeling that they are living their values, that they are more consistent. So when they do encounter setbacks or disappointments or frustrations in their everyday lives, that they're actually going to feel like, well, you know, their perception of stress is going to feel, it's going to be diminished. And uh, we're not gazelles like we 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 have a very hard time turning off the stress response and when we are stressed out even like something small happens in the beginning of a day it can just follow us all day long and we have this like a velcro you know that's attached to us like i can't believe this happened this is going today is going to be a horrible day like this always happens to me and we have this sense of things being like pervasive permanent and we take it very personally those are like the three p's it's called like explanatory style about how we, you know, manage stressors and or setbacks. But when we are creating opportunities though for like when we're having flow, when we're having these connections where we feel like we're contributing to something that we feel, um, you know, that, that we're feeling challenged in a meaningful way, we're going to be able to diminish some of that stress. And, you know, maybe the gazelle can get chased by a lion and escape and then get back to the watering hole and hang out and not be thinking about that lion chasing them. We're not as good at that. So we need to find like deliberate ways to turn off the stress response. And for some people, it might be meditation. For others, it might be walking. For some people, it might be being in nature. If you are lucky enough to live near a park, we know that, I mean, I think people have nature deficit disorder. We sure. And we do, we, we really, there's a tremendous benefit from being in nature, just spending 10 minutes in a green space. And it's known to reduce rumination. We were talking about that with self-distancing. Another way to do that is to go to the park. There's a great study looking at 
moms and daughters who either went to a mall or went to a park and how those who had gone to a park together, that they felt more connected. And we know, you know, we've known a lot of research around the benefits of nature for the individual, but looking at the dyad of the The mother and the daughter was so important. And it actually lingered, the sense of closeness, like lingered like into the following week, you know, whereas like probably at the mall, you're fighting and you want this and that. So it's just, I think if there is an opportunity of somebody who's lucky enough to live near a park, that it's a great way to reduce rumination and to even get closer to somebody and not have your phone that you're looking at either with you. Yeah, no, it's such a good habit. It's wiring in your kids that that's one of those daily habits that you can get into. And so many of us would be afraid because our if if there's a choice between the mall and the park, it may be that you're going to get pushback. But if you have the confidence and intention to like put this out there as part of your skill set, like part of your toolbox, then it's going to be such a wonderful way for for that relationship to build. And what a great like association for your kid and teenager to know that that's just like, even if it was a drag, you know, we're all hoping to build these experiences that can promote resilience because there's so many parts of resilience we have no control over, but the stuff we do have control over, it's so actionable, which is why I love every time you're talking about things. And I, I love when science and practical life can get, you know, together into, um, a conversation. What's so hard is to actually remind ourselves about, like, as you you said, like sometimes we forget and we forget those sort of vitality enhancing or mood boosting opportunities. And just to remind ourselves how important it is. And our kids are watching constantly and how we're even listening to like, oh, you know, our explanatory styles of like, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I just did that. Uh, You know, and just the exemplars and how kids are watching. And I study looking at kids who were, I think it's one and a half who were watching a parent struggle, trying to open up like a, a toy and how when they watch this parent struggle versus watching a parent just kind of throw it to the side, that they're much more likely to persist. And, you know, I ended up going back to school when I was 40 to study applied positive psychology. That was sort of the opposite of everything I had learned in medical school. <laughs> and, um, because we're focused on like what's wrong with people. And this was really yeah. kind of a way to focus on their strength and resilience. But, you know, being able to also share like my struggles and doing homework. And I think as parents, sometimes we're trying to keep our kids away or, you know, from how we're having a hard time or how we're even handling or, you know, like maybe I need to go for a walk. I don't even feel like it, but I bet it's going to make me feel better. You know, I think sometimes sharing loud. that. Yes. And like, you know, yeah. what's in my toolbox? What do you think I should have in my toolbox? Engage them. Like, you know, I think asking kids for advice, you know, is like, what would you do right now? You know, and, and can be incredibly helpful and empower them and also show that like, what's help, what helped you out once? Maybe that could help your sister too, you know, whatever that might be, you know, you know, your friend's having a hard time. What would you suggest to her? And even remember, be like, remember, you know, you said to you, you know, you'd help your friend out with this. Like what would, you know, maybe what you always thought for her to take a walk would be a good idea. Maybe, maybe we should take a walk. So I, I think there there are ways to kind of weave that in, but we often forget. So we need to remind ourselves as well. By the way, I forget, this is obviously a huge part of my life and work. And I still, every single day have to remind myself because I can just get stuck in what I'm doing for hours and hours and hours and forget. And then the sun's setting and I'm just like, how did this happen? How did this happen? And we all feel so busy and we all feel so overwhelmed. And yet 
I just feel like you bust the wellness industry so beautifully without undermining the benefits of some of it. And so much of social media and the world is taking advantage of this or misinterpreting the science in the service of this wellness, shaming wellness community. And because you've done first, you you know, the field of psychiatry, we know that medicine, just the medical model is very much fixing, not prevention, and it's not strength-based. It's deficit-based for the most part. And there are many wonderful things about this world, but there's work to be done. So shifting from that, but having all of that information and training and then adding positive psychology, when you look at this wellness world and you think some of the language that's pulled from positive psychology in particular, what could you say that helps people understand when it's wellness and when it's just like fantasy or I don't know, shame. I can't, I don't even know how to capture it, but there is something about the, you know, there's even a misinterpretation of positive psychology that like, that means that you're always supposed to look at the bright side and you're always supposed to say, I'm not going to have negative feelings and feelings have bad and good. And there's such a, I get like a real bee in my bonnet about it. Cause I'm like, no, <laughs> that yeah. is going to mess with people and make them feel ashamed for the feelings that they're having. So how do you come to terms with that? Having the kind of breadth of experience and knowledge and wisdom over time? I think there's like really two points you're making here. And one is like kind of like that kind of, you know, you've got to be happy all the time. This like happiness industrial complex that, you know, I think yeah. is is really doing us a disservice. And I might be a positive psychiatrist, but I, I'm, you know, a fan of negativity. I, I think like negative emotions have so much to teach us. They are their data. What can you learn from them? And I think teaching our kids how to manage them and how to identify them, how to label them you know, for all of us, I mean, there's research showing of how granular we can be. If you can, you know, label, it's not that I'm feeling bad. It's like, I'm, you know, feeling frustrated. I'm disappointed. And you can get a specific and telescope as best you can, what you're experiencing, like what you're feeling and why you're feeling that way. Identify it, almost put police tape around it. And then that kind of frees you up to just not see this as this global emotion that's hovering over you, but really, you know, break out of the source if necessary and learn from that. But, you know, understanding though, that kind of stress and negative emotions are kind of part of the growth process, that that's part of learning. There's good stress out there. And that's how, you know, for all of us, what are examples that we can share with our kids too, and that we can see where we've actually kind of grown from something. And even with all of, you know, the the research we're hearing, kids are, you know, stressed out. And we know that there's also a lot of research to show that people who, who've, who've also felt that there's been something underlying that some positive that's happened, that they are resilient. Actually, most people are resilient to setbacks and that there's an opportunity here too for the stealing effect, S-T-E-E-L-I-N-G, to take place. And so the next you know, time, hopefully our kids won't encounter another pandemic in their lifetimes, but they will have the coping skills that they will feel that they have the competence to tackle something difficult that's come their way. We know people who've had no adversity at all actually have a really hard time when they face adversity. There's a wonderful study about Kelly Lambert's done the University of Richmond, where she calls it the the rats she studies, these trust fund rats who get little fruit loops that she gives them on a silver platter versus these other rats who have to kind of forage and go searching for it. And then when those groups of rats are challenged again, those trust fund rats don't do very well, whereas Mm -hmm. the ones who've actually had to search a little bit 
and, and, and experienced some adversity, some stress, were actually the ones who were able to kind of cope and manage and adapt. And so, you know, so that I'm trying to answer your question really yes, around yes, like yes. the no, benefits of stress and, and negativity and, and that desirable difficulty. And, you know, obviously that's different for everybody at different times, but also when you can kind of take that challenge mindset to it, we know for like building resilience, when you're seeing things like with that challenge mindset, when you feel that you have the competence in coping and you have this optimistic explanatory style about something that those are factors that can boost resilience. And then just to address the the other part of your question around the sort of wellness industrial complex, this idea that you kind of need to buy and download happiness so you have to eat, pray, love your way to it. And it's very self-help oriented. And this is what I sort of bristle at in a way is that this idea that we've interiorized well-being, that it's something that's so individually based, that it's something like it's all up to you, it's all on your heavy, you know, this burden on your shoulders to figure out. It's all in your head. And I mean, so much research shows that actually so much of our well-being, you know, does like reside in our connections with others and also feeling like one of the best antidotes for stress we have is feeling like you're contributing to something else. And so, you know, self-help is only going to take you so far. And I think self-help especially in the way it's framed right now. And I don't think it's the way this was this originally intended, but buying that candle with all due respect, I don't, you know, or, you know, feeling like you've got to, that that's going to be some self-help tool. I've had patients who said, oh, I'm just doing this self-help journey and I'm just going to focus on myself for the next six months. And I'm just going to, you know, journal about me and my experience and my emotions. And it's actually sealed them off. I had one patient who was on this cleanse and then she wasn't seeing any of her friends and she wasn't able to go to any, you know, restaurants. This was pre-COVID at the time and go and spend time with family. Her sister came into town. She wasn't able to see her on this sort of self-help journey. And she really wasn't any happier several, you know, weeks into it. And I I think that's where self-help can kind of distort what actually you know, helps us feel strong and good. And it's often in our relations to others. And maybe, maybe it feels like an easier solution if we could just work on ourselves and that then, you know, if I could buy this or I, you know, get this pair of sneakers or I go to this place or I go to that retreat and then I can find myself and then I will be able to, you know, see the light and the skies will part. And even this whole idea of like finding oneself, I find to be really flawed because it's denying the very truth that we're all in the process of becoming, you know, the, I love the idea of there being some true self that's, you know, you could do enough therapy and find some kernel of truth in who you are, but that's really denying how much you've actually been changing over time and how much you will change. And I, I think it's a, professor at Harvard who, who always talks about how, you know, we're also, you know, we can all see how much we've changed, but it's impossible for us to see how much that we will change moving forward. And I think we can just be a little bit conscious about that and, and be a little bit more deliberate and hopefully bending in the directions that we want to, you know, with our values front and center, where we're connecting with others, where we feel like we're contributing and we feel like we're challenged in a good way. And that are other oriented, that are outer oriented, because I think it's often in other help, not self-help, that we're going to feel most vital.